Hi, and welcome to the Inner Network Podcast, where I chat with inspiring women about their career and advice to the next generation of founders, CEOs, and leaders in the industry. If you're new to the podcast, thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm your host, Kyla Kabelin, and today I'm joined by Ayla Morin. Ayla was formerly the brand marketing and go-to-market director at Missouri, where she spent four years growing the brand to where it is today. She's recently taken on a role at Merit Beauty, a minimalist, clean, luxury beauty brand founded by Katherine Power, where she leads the marketing, creative, and product of the collection. I'll be leaving all of her links in the show notes, but in the meantime, enjoy the episode. Hi, Ayla. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. You've had such a great career with so much more to come, I'm sure. So I'm so excited to just hear more about your career journey and more specifically what you're up to with Merit. Amazing. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to join you and chat through it. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. And for those who aren't as familiar with your career journey, you formerly led the brand marketing and go-to-market strategy at Missouri. And now you've taken on a role at Merit Beauty where you lead marketing, creative, and product. Can you take us back to the beginning of your career and how everything got started for you? Yeah, um, it was not a linear journey. I can tell you that much. Um So I actually studied um, international relations and I was at U of T uh, with a focus in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, actually. And what I learned during my first year of school is that as much as I was interested in the geopolitical side of it, I was more interested in the sociological aspect of it um, and how it impacted generational change, how it impacts culture and how people live their lives. And that really kind of pushed me to redirect my studies. And I did the rest of my degree in sociology at UBC. And I always say sociology can surprise people that I studied that and then went into marketing, but it really is the study of trends and understanding influence and how cultural change happens. So it was a a great uh, diving board, if you will, for the world of marketing, although I did not know that at the time. And when I graduated university, I had applied to law schools. I had written my LSAT and um, that was the plan. And I decided to take a year off and get a job and kind of save up money before I went. And in that year... I took a job as a marketing coordinator and the rest is kind of history. From there, I obviously did not end up going to law school. Um, I got started in marketing at a startup and I think now I'm on my sixth startup. So uh, I've kind of made a, a career out of building new brands. Yeah. And that's super crazy that you mentioned the startup. Was that when you mentioned that first startup, was that then Missouri? No. So I worked at multiple failed startups before I joined Missouri, which was very character building and great to do early in your career because I got really comfortable with things not going well. But no, I, I'd worked at four prior to joining Missouri. So I'd, I'd kind of... Uh, I'd kind of seen what makes a business successful and what makes it not work. And when it came to interview for that role, I was really confident in taking it because I I was excited and passionate about the mission, the brand and the team and and made it an easy choice. Yeah. And I mean, that kind of leads into what I, you know, just kind of thought of when you said, you know, the failed startups, were you ever hesitant at all with joining Missouri? Of course, 
you know, we know it now as such a, you know, big company, it's really grown to where it used to be when it first started. Were you hesitant at all to join a startup knowing that you've had um, experiences with other failed startups? Did that deter you from um, going after that role at Missouri? No. So I think for me, I love a risk. I have a very short attention span. I like to constantly be learning new things. And startups have always felt like the place where that is celebrated, where you have space to do a million things in a day and you can kind of be across a company as opposed to a specific focus. And I knew, you know, when I was interviewing for Missouri, I had kind of been through the ringer in terms of understanding what works and what doesn't work. So I was really interested in their business plan, um, which had really solid data and proof of concept. And the founders who, you know, went on to become incredible mentors to me, both Nora and Majid, were just really smart people. And I knew going in that what I was looking for more than anything else was to surround myself with people that were incredibly smart and could teach me things. And I knew that there would be a a high growth curve. And I joined as the first marketing hire. And that was really an exciting role. I would have never known what it grew to be. I mean, as much as you hope that it's going to be successful, I don't think I ever knew just how quickly and how um, incredible at scale that would become. But um, it was a it was never anything I doubted because I kind of not only knew logically, but, you know, I think intuition is everything and it felt right for me. And I think a lot of my career decisions that haven't ended up so well, I intuitively knew it was the wrong thing to do. So I've gotten much better at listening to that voice. When you were leading the brand marketing and go-to-market strategy, how has that evolved? Obviously you were in the position when social media influencer marketing was really you know, at its high, it was really just, you know, on the up. How did that really affect, you know, the marketing strategy and the advertising strategy for Missouri? Yeah. So, uh, so when I first started at Missouri, I was the first marketing hire, which meant I touched all of performance, all of brand and all of go to market. And that was really helpful because what I learned is all of the nitty gritty. So I, you know, I'm not sure if you remember vintage Missouri, but we uh, had, had done uh, collaborations with YouTubers So I negotiated all those deals, you know, worked with talent to make sure that the jewelry was, you know, in their aesthetic and also within the brand scope, um, and then really worked to bring those to life. So I learned how to do that on a really nitty gritty level. And that was before influencer marketing was really big. So what Missouri did really well, um, and what really became the backbone of my understanding of marketing is that micro influencer and macro influencer programs were core from day one. I mean, we had very small budgets at the beginning, but I learned how to build a proposal and how to make uh, compelling content. And that really is what gave us that brand awareness and reach. And then I also learned performance marketing on a pretty detailed level. So I ran our Facebook ads personally in terms of, you know, detailing out audiences and UTMs and creative for two years because we had quite a small team for kind of my first year and a half to two years where I was a jack of all trades. And that was actually really beneficial because, you know, by the time I left, I had a 20 person team and... I knew how long it took to do something and and how you did things the right way. And I think it makes you a really good leader to be able to understand the ins and outs of what someone's working on. And that kind of focus on nitty gritty has really benefited my skill set today because it enables me to manage really senior team members and give them the space to execute, but also have the detailed knowledge to be able to support and give feedback. But by the time I left, I was focused on brand and go to market. Obviously, Missouri is a bit of a different story than most brands because they launch a new collection every single Monday. So it meant that as a marketer, that's 52 campaigns a year on top of your evergreen campaigns and then Black Friday and holiday and Valentine's Day. So it's a pretty strenuous calendar. What's great about it is it gives you a ton of data 
and you learn constantly, you know, did this edition sell well? Did it not sell well? What size is moving? Is gold or silver more popular this season? Um, and you can constantly learn and refine what you're purchasing. So it, it really helps with keeping a streamlined business. And it helps because in today's world of, you know, the constant need for more content, there's always newness. So you're never static or stale. So those were all great things for training, but it became, um, kind of all consuming to do go to market because we had, you know, retail stores, I believe there's eight today that all needed to be built out and have those audiences built out. And then the overall um, strategy in terms of brand expansion and category expansion that took up a lot of time. So it was an incredible trajectory, really interesting and challenging. And I'm so grateful for the experience. And, you know, it it gave me the opportunity to touch every single part of the business. And that's really a skill set that I've kind of carried forward with me. Yeah, and that's such an interesting strategy, launching a new collection that often because, and I think it's pretty smart because, you know, the more data, the better. You were at Missouri for four years. What would you say are the biggest, you know, key pieces of information or really just, you know, things in the industry that you have learned that you're now applying to your role at Merit? Yeah, I think for me, I became really good at just distilling what matters. I think there's a lot of noise when it comes to marketing and in a busy environment, it gets easy to get stuck on stuff that doesn't move the business forward. So when I look at my current role and how Merit is growing, I really just focus on creative culture and cash or kind of, I wake up every morning and I review those things. So, you know, a brand is only as good as it's creative. Creative is the the lifeline. And if it's not strong and you don't have good content, then you will never be successful. So I really focus on that. And then I focus on culture. So how do people feel in their role when they come in every day? Are people inspired? Are they challenged? Is anyone burnt out? And how are you managing that? And cash in terms of, you know, revenue, in terms of customer acquisition cost, in terms of your run rate, in terms of your raise plan. So I always really try and focus my day on those three things. And that was really a learning that I got from Missouri was how do I distill it in my role, what my value is and my value is the long-term vision of the company. And, and to do that, I really need to focus on what really moves the needle and what keeps people happy because ultimately your greatest asset is your people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to hear that, you know, those are your core focuses because I feel like, you know, there are leaders in the industry that might not have the same values as you do. So it's really refreshing to hear that. Um, I also wanted to say congrats on, you know, the launch of Merit in Sephora, because I know that's a huge milestone. Thank you. When it came to the process of building, you know, Merit Beauty from the ideation phase to fully launching, I'd love to know how, you know, that process was like for you. And did you and your team at Merit always know that you wanted the company to be an omni-channel, like retailer, an omni-channel business? Yeah. So I'm really fortunate. And the reason that I took the role at Merit is actually, I had a few conversations with Catherine Power really early on. um, So kind of mid 2019. And I obviously admired the way she'd built businesses in the past. She's obviously the the co-founder and CEO of Who What Wear. She's the co-founder of Aveline and founder and CEO of Versed Skincare. And I looked at those businesses and, you know, I saw huge potential and I saw a really great ability to find white space. And in my early conversations with her, what was so clear is that she, like me, I think, does not have a fear of taking risks and is willing to bet big. And I would consider her to be a cultural anthropologist almost because she has such an incredible sense of what people need before they need it. Um, And what I mean by that is she'd been working on merit as a concept for five years, I think formulas for three, and always had this idea of minimalist beauty and less is more. 
And obviously we launched in January of 2021 after probably the biggest beauty reckoning in centuries where in a nine month period, makeup sales, according to Nielsen, were down 37%, which is massive in a multi-billion dollar industry. So she somehow had the foresight to know that this would be the right moment and that that's the way women were leading. And I think, you know, like many things in e-commerce and in personal habits, um, the pandemic really accelerated habitual changes for consumers. So that was a helpful jumping off point. And then when it came to building the brand, I think, you know, I, I joined her and she had this really great sense that it would be omni-channel and that's how we wanted to speak with women and, and learn from them. It's also how we shop realistically. I'm, you know, sometimes I'll order stuff online. Sometimes I want to go in and touch and feel and makeup is definitely one of those things that can be really nice to experience in person. So we always felt like there was great potential for that balance, but we really did focus on the e-commerce platform that we built our website on, on our social, on our content. And we're, we're being really intentional with how we build the brand. So that, you know, less is more brand level messaging is, is very true internally. Um, coming from a place where we launched an incredible 52 campaigns a year, we've really kind of tried to dial in what products do women actually need on their vanity? What are they going to use long-term? How does our messaging speak to that? And kind of slow down the cadence of marketing. Um, because what we're looking for as consumers today has just changed so exponentially in the last year. I don't know if you've noticed it with your habits, but I use maybe a quarter of the products that I used to use. Yeah, I feel like I'm the same way as well. It's nice to know that, you know, there is a brand out there that's really just taking all of the, you know, considerations of, you know, women, you know, men, I mean, like anyone can use these products and, you know, it's really just doubling down on what you really need and, not only that, but being minimal and, you know, vegan, cruelty-free. When Merit was, you know, in the phases of ideation and really just looking at the core mission of the company, what would you say are the main pillars of Merit Beauty? I mean, first I would say ease of use and simplicity. So there have been so many incredible makeup launches in the last few years, but I think we're, we're all at a bit of a saturation point. And what was always really interesting um, to me and what Catherine really identified is that there were so many highly pigmented makeup products launching that required brushes and techniques. And, you know, there was the, the rise and then very quick fall during the pandemic of false lashes. And it all felt like a lot of work. And I think sometimes that can be exciting work if it's a Friday night and you've got time and you're having a glass of wine and you're looking forward to doing a smoky eye. But on your average morning, it was overwhelming. And it felt like everything was highly pigmented, needed an artist's touch, needed multiple tools to blend. And coming at makeup from a place of how do I make this impossible to mess up and, and just really beautiful and flattering on skin tones is a very different lens to look at it through. On top of that, Obviously, we think about body, skin, and planet when it comes to how we've built what goes into the brand. So what I mean by that is we're EU compliant, um, so we're free of about 1,328 different potentially harmful ingredients that are identified by the EU but that are legal in the U.S. We also work with an esthetician named Biba D'Souza, who has a no list of an additional 73 ingredients that can be triggering for acne-prone skin. And one of the interesting things when we were doing studies is that, you know, our main consumer is that kind of 28 to 30 something year old. And, you know, she's wondering about aging, but she's also still breaking out. And it's not something any of us are really talking about because we thought we'd all grow out of it when we hit our early 20s. But most women aren't. So making products that don't make that worse, that don't trigger a reaction seems like table stakes, but often isn't considered. 
And in line with that, being uh, cruelty-free and vegan also just seemed like, why would you not be? At this stage of the innovation game, it's so easy to do it without involving any animal byproducts that regardless of what your personal dietary choices are, it's just a place you don't need to use them. And then on top of that, we focus on planet. So obviously it can sound counterintuitive to be a brand selling product saying less is more. We're very aware of that. But I think, you know, one of the main issues with consumption and and with the waste from beauty products is actually people not finishing products because they have a shelf life. You know, you buy a foundation, you don't really like it, you use it three times, you leave it on your counter or you put it in a cabinet and then two years later you throw it out. That's one of the main reasons for waste. So having a more curated vanity is is one of the easiest ways to cut down your impact. In addition to that, we use um, post-consumer recycled plastic and componentry where we can, and we're continuing to innovate on that. Um, the industry is changing really rapidly. So every few months, we're relooking at the composition of our plastics. And then our, our shipment um, mailer is also quite different. So our mailing box is 100% recyclable. It's made out of 30% post-consumer waste. Um, we ship with a reusable makeup bag, which has been insanely popular. People love it because you can throw it in the washing machine on cold and refresh it and keep using it because I, like every other woman, spill things in my makeup bag all the time. So being able to wash it was a revelation. And then we also use green cell phone for packaging, which is a cornstarch derivative, and you can just compost it or dissolve it in your sink. So there's a lot of ways that we're always looking to kind of push the envelope on innovation and technology. But I think ultimately the most important thing when it comes to consumption is just buying less um, and being intentional with our purchasing. And I think that shift is something we're really seeing through COVID in terms of how selective we are with the products that we choose to use. And that's so important too. When, And I feel like when you, know, you are a consumer and you think about beauty products and makeup products, you don't necessarily think about the waste that comes with it. So it's really important to think about that. And it's great to hear that Merit is, you know, really taking a stance on being a leader in, you know, the industry that is so wasteful and really just finding alternatives to really just be mindful of the planet, which I really love. When it comes to clean beauty in, you know, the industry, I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions with, you know, clean beauty, not having the same, you know, staying power, efficacy. There's so many things that have gone around or what people think about clean beauty, but how have you seen it change? And, you know, what can you say about those misconceptions that some people have? Sure. I mean, I I think the misconceptions are legitimate because it's such a nebulous term. Like what does clean mean? Does clean mean that there's dirty beauty products? I 100% get it. I think, you know, for us, it was a word that we really talked through to death internally when it came to talking about the brand. Unfortunately, there isn't really another term that's more scientific. So we really distill it on a few levels. Um, One, we are clean at Sephora. Um, We post our ingredient lists in full online down to the tiniest ingredients so people can have full transparency. Two, we have a really clear list of what's in our products and not in our products. And that's our definition of clean. It definitely varies, you know, person to person in terms of what's important to you. And we just believe that transparency and education is really the the most important step forward. And then in terms of efficacy and performance, I think that, you know, technology is moving at incredible rates. If we can land something on Mars, then we can absolutely figure out how to make a foundation stick that does not involve animal byproducts or toxins and have it stay on your skin all day. It's quite literally not rocket science. And I think 
the product design and innovation is moving at such an incredible rate. I mean, I think about when I first started wearing concealer in high school and the only product was this light blue foundation. And it came in like five shades in the small town where I grew up. And the shade I wore was like bright peach and oxidized over the course of the day and looked just terrible. And, you know, I think about the difference in the products that we wear now and we can find our exact match and they last all day and they look like skin and the advancements that are being made are pretty incredible. So I think, you know, trusting in the science is also important. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I remember that um, foundation that you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I think we all used it. (laughs) I can picture it in my head. Um, I want to touch on clean washing because, Mm -hmm. you know, I know this is such an important topic and it does continue to be a problem in the beauty industry. When you're thinking about a consumer, for example, that isn't as educated when it comes to ingredients, when it comes to specific companies that aren't necessarily as transparent. And for example, like Merit is included in the clean um, beauty category at Sephora, but there are people that, you know, are really just sticking to their die hard products and they want to get educated, but they don't really know where to start. So mm-hmm. I'd love to know what resources you've leaned on, especially with choosing products that are truly clean. What have you leaned on in terms of accepting that there are a lot of products out there that aren't necessarily clean um, and really just trying to be mindful of what you use, what you purchase um, in your day-to-day life? Yeah. So I believe everything's about balance. I don't use only clean products. I think that would be very hard for anyone to do. I try and use around 80% clean products, but I'm not committed to it. I I think ultimately the the importance of the discussion is, are you getting your information from a non-biased resource? So, you know, when I talk about skincare, I talk to my dermatologist because I need someone who's an expert to talk to me on an ingredient level and educate me there. Um, I think there's a lot of great non-biased information online that you can also read about. And ultimately, I think it's about what your skin reacts well to as well. You know, some people have really sensitive skin, so it's an easy transition to seek out products that are more suited for that skin type. Um, And if it's not something you're looking for, I also think that Merit on its own, even if it wasn't clean, would be an attractive brand, which was really intentional for us. We don't really believe that being clean is a marketing um, ploy at this point, it's kind of table stakes. If you're launching a brand in today's day and age that you would, you would take that step. So for us, it's kind of a must have. And, you know, the work that we're really focused on doing is, is branding on top of that to really communicate well to our customers. But ultimately it comes down to personal education and personal preference, how much you want to know, how much you care. I think all brands should be transparent in their ingredient list and put it all out there. And then consumers can make up their own minds on what's important to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really important to be, you know, informed and wanting to actually know about these products, because if not, then you're really just going to be sucked into the clean washing and you're not going to be, you know, able to make those decisions based on your knowledge of the ingredients. So, you know, that's important to have those resources. And it's really great to have a dermatologist. I guess I feel like some people don't take the time to, you know, reach out to a third party that, like you mentioned, is non-biased. So um, it's important to think about um, when it comes to, you know, the focus on minimalism and how, you know, the line does focus on empowering the idea of less is more. How does the, how does the brand do that? And when you're looking at the ideal 
person that merits targeting? Who is that girl? Who is that woman? And what does she do on a day to day? Sure. So I think, you know, what I think is so important to be clear about is that less is more isn't about shaming wearing more makeup. I think that there is such a wealth of incredible, heavily pigmented colors that I love to wear when I have time. It's just more that there was this gap in kind of makeup with skincare-like ingredients that was impossible to mess up and really effortless and just made you look like you, but a little bit more polished. So that was kind of the intention behind the brand. And I think there's there's space for every, every style and, and every company. I think for us, it was really saying, you know, my makeup bag was bigger than my lunch kit in 2019. Like <laughs> I would have a concealer, maybe I'd have a tinted moisturizer. I would have a pressed powder, a brow pencil, a brow gel, a mascara, a lipstick, and then a lip balm from when my lips got too dry. It was just such a production. And I think, you know, going into 2020 and even into 2021, I, my routine has just been pared back so much to what actually has value. So what that means for me is most days I don't wear mascara because I find it irritating to put on. It's just, it's annoying to me. (laughs) So I, you know, I'll do my brows and I put on a cheek color and that's my most minimal face that I really feel great with. And I think the comment on, on less is more is really just the expectation was so high that for me, my morning routine felt like an obligation. I felt like I had to show up with a blowout and my blazer on and my heels on and my face done. And now I get dressed for me. You know, I'm sitting in a conference room right now talking to you and I'm, I'm wearing a blazer, yes, but I am wearing Birkenstocks and I'm very comfortable and I have almost no makeup on. And I think that change in prioritizing our comfort and prioritizing how we feel on a given day has been pretty incredible for consumers. And I don't think it's going to go back because, you know, these things that we used to be ashamed of doing in public, like wearing no makeup or wearing sweatpants or wearing Birks, whatever it may be, I think it varies depending on the person. The last year has really taught us that none of that matters. And I think the fortunate thing is we've gotten to this place where we expect that our makeup and our outfits are comfortable. And it's incredible that we are only just now saying that we demand comfort and transparency from our products. But I think it's, you know, great that we finally do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to looking at your career from an outside perspective, when I see it, you know, you've had a lot of experience and, you know, different verticals, and you've just done so much in your career. And I'd love to take it back to more of the, you know, technical side of your career and your role. When it comes to marketing and advertising, and it seems like you've, you know, learned a lot by doing, and I really do love the saying learn by doing. When it comes to somebody wanting to, you know, follow a similar career path, what do you recommend in terms of, you know, learning on their own or positions that, you know, you think are able to really just help in their career? Um, You know, do you recommend internships? Do you recommend like taking a pay cut if you are in a different industry and you want to switch? Like just advice like that, that maybe you have gone through throughout your career. Sure. I mean, I think first of all, find something you're passionate about because you spend a lot of your life at work, let me tell you. And that becomes really important. I never did an internship because I could not afford to. I, you know, I worked at bars and in retail throughout university. And when I finished university, I had to find a paying job where I wasn't going to make rent. So that was never an option for me. And I think, you know, unpaid internships are more and more becoming a thing of the past, which they should be, but it's so often not an option. I definitely have taken pay cuts. I did shifting between roles before and I I did it because I saw the upside in the growth. And I also 
was kind of recompensated in other ways, whether it was shares or vacation time, there was always a balance. As a general rule, what's worked well for me is early stage startups because that's my personality type, but I don't think that's necessarily everybody. I am a marketing generalist and now, you know, my skill set is really leading teams more than anything else and bringing people together to create incredible campaigns and product and brands. That's really what I've built it to be. But at the beginning, it was about mastering whatever was put in front of me. So whether that was learning by doing, whether that was watching insane hours of YouTube or reading books, I really just focused on learning as much as I could and learning from the people around me. And I think anytime you're in a role as early in your career, it doesn't really matter what you're making or what your title is. It matters how much you're learning because I think you learn pretty quickly that title means very little. <laughs> it's really about what are you absorbing? How are you growing? And how are you being challenged? And the moment you're not being challenged is the moment you need to do something else. Yeah. And I think, you know, money and title and, you know, all of that stuff, it comes later and it will come. Like, it's not something that you need right away. Like it's going to happen. You're going to be, you know, the marketing director, like it takes time. So I really do appreciate, you know, you saying that just doing what you're passionate about. I feel like that's so cliche to say, but really it's true. So <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a great piece of advice. When it comes to, you know, your mentors and people that you have looked up to throughout your career, what has been, you know, the best experience for you when it comes to mentorship? And I think a lot of people have difficulty finding that type of relationship. So, you know, any advice on how to find a mentor, like where to find a mentor um, and just, you know, how to go around that conversation? So I don't really believe in the traditional idea of mentors. I think we kind of get sold this idea that we need to find this person who's like our career spiritual guide that's going to like help us through tough situations. And I think you know, the most important mentorship for me has often been at a peer level. I have gotten incredible feedback and had incredible um, experiences being able to bounce ideas off of people who are on my team. I've also worked for some really incredible founders who have been great mentors because I reported to them. You know, I, I always think of Catherine as one of the best mentors I've ever had because she gives excellent feedback that's never overbearing. And she reminds you of what's important. So she once said to me, you know, never take no for an answer. And sometimes it's really easy to think of those offhand comments as, as you know, not significant. But I think about that comment all the time when I'm, you know, going out and, and making things happen for merit. I just, I don't really care if someone says no the first time. I will circle back and I will hustle and I will negotiate. And I am pretty fearless in that. So I think it, it's up to you to decide what relationships are significant in your life. I think mentorship exists everywhere. I don't think a singular mentor is a realistic expectation of someone because that's asking a lot depending on what the relationship dynamics are. And I think finding mentorship in your peers is really important. So I've always been super open to feedback from people that I work with, to hearing what they think, to understanding how I can be better and vice versa. And I think you get more real feedback when it's on the same level as well because they really see the, the minutia of your day. So yeah, it's, I, I don't think I could ever stand back and say, you know, this is my mentor, but I, I could say I've had some really incredible relationships that have um, mentored me through different points of my career. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I'm totally with you on, you know, mentorship. I think there is such a, you know, end all be all, it's an end all be all statement. I feel like one person, you know, that's going to lead you to success or whatever it may be. And I think, people do forget. And sometimes I've forgotten too, that there are a lot of talented people around me that are my peers and they have a lot of great information to share and knowledge to share. So 
just, you know, something to keep in mind of for everybody. Um, having that idea of mentorship, it's not always what, you know, it seems to be. Um, when it comes to, you know, being part of, you know, multiple startups and, you know, the startup lifestyle does get pretty busy and there's a lot of things on the go. How do you personally balance, you know, the work-life balance in your life? I mean, I was generally terrible at it up until the last year. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think I, I always like to be really clear when I'm talking about, you know, my career progression that I gave up a lot in my early to mid to late 20s, I guess, at this point. I worked insane hours and we glamorize the speed at which people climb the career ladder. But I always remind people that, you know, that 10,000 hours to master something, I just did it at an accelerated pace and I did have to miss out on other things in order to do that. So, you know, there were a lot of trips I missed and summer, summers away and dates and things that I couldn't do because I was working. So balance, honestly, I think we all had to relearn in the last year. It's a huge focus for me because I am the kind of person that leans too much into overworking. So the way I manage myself, which is really important, is that I generally get up at 530. Um, I at first was jet lagged when I moved to LA. And now that's just when I get up because I'm used to it. I check my emails, which everyone says that you shouldn't do. But for me, it helps me to understand how the business is performing, what everyone needs. We obviously have a team in New York, so it allows me to just loop in with them and ensure their days are off to the right start. Then I have time where I can go hiking or go for a run, and I can really process everything that I need to bring to the table that day. So, you know, the most important thing as a leader is to really bring a, first of all, you need to come in balanced and optimistic and ready to work. There's no space to be defeated. Secondly, you need to come in with insight. So I, you know, take the time to really process, to listen to podcasts. Sometimes I call a friend and I just really center myself so that I can be the best version of myself and able to show up for my team. And then I eat a really big breakfast, which, you know, my mother told me was always a big deal. And I didn't realize it until much later in life. But I, you know, I'm the kind of person that once I get into flow, I can be gone for 12 to 16 hours and I don't even, you know, realize basic human rituals. So you know, I eat a great breakfast. I make a smoothie and bring it to my desk with me. I now only have one cup of coffee, not three. And then I just really sit down and I get it done. And I find that by taking that time to build boundaries, um, to have time to process really allows me to approach my work, not from a reactive place, but from a proactive place. I think, you know, startups are famous. We hear all the stories about people being really emotionally reactive because it's high pressure because you're high growth. And I think now that my entire career has been high pressure and high growth, I've just realized that you you don't actually need to bring that energy into it. You can you can build something that grows really quickly and is really successful and also have a life. And I think that's a lesson each of us needs to learn. And it, it means different things to different people because we all have different needs and boundaries. But it's one that I've definitely learned the hard way and I continue to work on every day. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think too, it's to each their own when it comes to your morning routine and how you balance, you know, that work-life balance. I think there is no end all be all of you should do this. You should do this. Like it's, it really is just what works for you. And, you know, when it comes to having those rituals that really just keep you on track, you know, it is inevitable that, you know, people come off that track sometimes and lose balance. And so, you know, what do you do when, you know, you lose track of that morning ritual or the daily ritual, whatever it may be? Like, how do you bounce back from that? Um, I hold myself accountable. So, you know, I, I think you have to reflect on your own behavior. You know, when I feel tired or I'm dehydrated or, you know, I'm not motivated, I just really focus on what are the steps that I need to take. And I think, you know, part of managing your mental health is understanding what those levers are. For me, it's nutrition, it's exercise, and it's connection. So if I'm having a really shitty day, 
I, you know, make a smoothie or I eat something healthy. I go for a walk. I call a friend or I, you know, now that I can do that, I, I go grab coffee or dinner with someone. I understand how to mitigate my own brain. And I think that is only through a lot of time and work and understanding how I work. And frankly, through, you know, not coping well and learning through therapy and learning through high stress environments that, that you get to a place where you know what the levers are. It doesn't mean you always choose to take the right steps. You know, sometimes we like to wallow on a Sunday and, <laughs> and eat what we want and feel like crap and that's allowed. And that can also be just as valuable. But, you know, I, I think it's on every individual. And, and this is something that I really emphasize on a leadership level. It's your job to show up for yourself. So it's, it's on you, not on any relationship to make yourself happy. And it's on you to figure out how you show up to work and enjoy what you do. And if you can't do that, then either you're in the wrong role or you need to figure out how to manage yourself. And that all comes from within. So I think that that work takes time and it's uncomfortable and it's hard and it happens little bit by little bit, but ultimately you can only be accountable to yourself. Mm -hmm. And those, you know, those Sundays are, those lazy Sundays are allowed, rest is allowed, like it's, I feel like a lot of people are so quick to be like restrictive on themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be that way. Like life is life and things get in the way and rest is okay. When it comes to, you know, a pinch me moment you've had, because, you know, like I mentioned, you've had a whirlwind of a career, you've had so many you know, accomplishments and you've been, you know, part of really successful companies, what pinch me moment can you really just, you know, look back on and what makes you smile when you think about a specific um, moment? Yeah. I mean, we just launched into Sephora, I guess three weeks ago now. And that was a huge pinch me moment. I worked in the beauty boutique at Shoppers Drug Mart from age, I don't know, 15 through the end of university. I would do the four to midnight shift where I recommended makeup products and applied makeup for people. And it's pretty surreal to, you know, be part of someone who's designing a display and concepting this brand and, and seeing it in the hands of women across the Canada, Canada and the US is, is really exciting. It's a, it's a privilege. It's not something that I ever would have expected that I would have in my career. And it's an honor, honestly, when people have us on their vanity and they write reviews, it is pinch me all over again. And it just makes it exciting and inspiring for, you know, what's next to come for the brand. And it really lights a fire under your ass to make sure it's good. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Sephora is a huge deal. So, you know, big congrats to you again, because that Thank is you. huge. You know, I want to end things off with the best piece of advice that either you've been given or that, you know, you take with you that you think would be beneficial for, you know, somebody that's maybe starting out in their career and really just looking up to the type of career you have. I'd say yes to everything. I mean, I, I took jobs that did not work out, but they brought me to jobs that did. Don't assume that you don't know how to do it. And someone else does because they're, you know, we always assume there's someone who's like the adult in the room and, what I have learned as someone who is now supposed to be the adult in the room is there generally is not. Um, <laughs> we all have imposter syndrome and normalize failure. Uh, we don't talk about it enough. You don't see it on Instagram. You just see people's promotions and startups don't get to where they are because everything just went right all the time. That's not how you learn. So normalize failure, get great at accepting failure, make it part of your day and just understand that it's just, it's all a flow for improvement. Yeah. And don't believe everything you see on the internet. That's, that's always my advice is ground yourself in real relationships and real people um, work really hard and the rest will come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think too, with just the idea of what people's lives are on Instagram, like 
you know, it's not it's not what they seem to be. And I feel like everybody knows that, but they still, you know, go on the platform, like, you know, take it with a grain of salt. It's so refreshing to see that somebody is so transparent with failure and hardships. Um, and I just wanted to say, you know, thank you again for taking the time to chat with me and share your career journey, because I think we can all take, you know, a piece of advice from you and just what you've gone through as well. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. 